All right, well, welcome, friends, to uh, our second Evangel Academy. Uh, appreciate that you guys would take some time out of your evenings to join us. Before we start, uh, does everybody have all of the utensils and things that they need in terms of pens, paper? We have both if you need it. Um, just give me a shout or a nod or like a, I don't know, like a yep or something. We're good? Do you need something? Uh, I would love to say yes, um, I, but I, I can't. I'm, I'm not accredited, unfortunately, so. <laughs> but I wish it would be. You never know. Um, anybody else need anything? Any pens, pencils? What do you need? Paper? Could we grab a notebook? Thanks, Lisa. Great. Uh, well, before we uh, jump into anything, let's just quickly pray, uh, and then by that time, I'm sure Lisa will be back and we'll be able to jump in. Uh, so God, we thank you so much uh, that you are here with us and that, uh, Jesus, you modeled what a teacher is for, for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we jump into the word that you have inspired, uh, God, I pray that we would uh, be with ears open uh, and minds ready to, to learn about you and to grow deeper in your ways. God, we thank you uh, for the life of Paul, uh, for what a transformation you did in his life and for uh, the, the writings that he has in your word. Um, that inspire us today. God, we pray that uh, our minds would be open and that we would be uh, just ready to receive. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Praise in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we start, uh, this is like a little bit more of like a formal learning style. Um, and so it does, I'm sure already, feel a little bit more formal because you've got your pens and your pencils and, you know, you're sitting like a very attentive student, which I appreciate because uh, I can't say I was always the case when I was in Bible college. Uh, and so thank you for at least looking attentive. Um, so one of the things that I, or maybe like kind of one of my pet peeves when I was in college, uh, was that I never knew how my professors like did their notes. Because each professor organized them a different way and kind of had a different, sorry to Gary, uh, had a different um, kind of way of structuring them. And it always like, I felt like I was kind of um, behind the eight ball of learning how they did it. And so then for me as like, I don't know, like a mildly neurotic um, person who needs to have like order and organization in their life, I would always be frustrated that I couldn't figure it out until like we got through some of it. Um, so before we do, the, uh, Lucas, is it our, yeah, we're going to do a quick overview of our four weeks together. Uh, so this week, week one, is going to be our introduction. Uh, so who was Paul? Some preliminary considerations that we'll have uh, that will kind of help set the frame or set the scope for the rest of the weeks. Week two uh, will be about the Corinthian church. Uh, we're calling Corinthian Correspondence. Uh, what that says there, it's, a, it's the passionate church in trouble. Um, and that was very much what marked the Corinthians' lives and what marked the letters to them. Uh, the third week, we're going to do Galatians, uh, learning about where freedom is found. And then week four, we're going to jump into special issues in Paul. So particularly, we're going to do women's role in the home and church. So already, some of you are like feeling the like prickles of heat in your cheeks. Uh, and the role of the Spirit, particularly in the expression of spiritual gifts. Um, so for all of you who are wanting the controversy, you have to come back in three weeks from now, uh, because we're not quite there yet. So this is how we organize notes. Uh, we're going to have like a Roman numeral as the main topic, uh, so that will go in successive order. Um, but if there's something part of that main topic, or that particular topic, uh, it will be a, like an English letter. Uh, so it will go, again, in, in alphabetical order there of a subtopic. Under those will be bullet points, and then if it's like an indented bullet point, it is another point that's like going off of that point. Um, and so that's how I'm going to organize my notes. And so hopefully that will help you if uh, you don't have to put up a hand, but if you're a neurotic like me, that will hopefully help you. Uh, just know how I organize notes and kind of know how uh, we shift gears in terms of topics, in terms of um, kind of subtopics and everything in there. And so that's how I organize my notes. Any questions about that? Great. All right, well, let's jump in. Uh, so we're going to jump into introduction of our introduction. Um, and so the first thing that I want to quickly uh, just jump into is a little bit of something that we're going to do called red light moments. Um, and so for our red light moments, we're going to be like pausing and asking some questions. Uh, it'll be time for discussion. That's why we're red lighting, so we're stopping and having some time for discussion. Now, with that being said, is there will be like set aside time for uh, discussion, but if you have questions in between, 
uh, please feel free to just like interrupt me, stand up, throw a pen at me, like whatever gets my attention, uh, because I want this to be not just like me blurbing at you the whole time for like a really, really long, uh, boring time, but I want this to be a time where we all can ask questions. Uh, likely if you have a question, somebody probably has a similar or the exact same question. And so no question that you ask here is gonna be like, laughed about or looked down upon or feel like a question that you shouldn't ask, I do really want you to ask them uh, because it will help bring like richness and, and, and like color to our conversation and really actually helps us learn better. And so if this is all about learning about God's word, then asking your questions is important because it leads to good discussion and it leads to better learning, uh, at least in my opinion. So uh, Lucas, do you wanna jump to that? Okay, so what comes to mind when you think of the color red? This is a red light moment. What are some things that you keep that come to mind? Stop, yep. Fire. fire, what about fire? Like, is it hot, dynamic, yep. What else? This is like a color theory class. Apparently we're doing art today. Um, I didn't take any art classes, so this could all be just a bunch of craziness, but. It's bold, yep. Sorry? Trouble, Trouble? yep. Oftentimes, like, you know, our, our fire alarms are red, uh, our fire bells are red, fire trucks are red, yep, trouble? Sorry? Brightening? Brightening, yes. Masks are so hard, we need like, a, like another language. I know, it's okay, it's all good. Frightening, yes. Anger, great, anything else? Words of Jesus, yeah, red letter, I like it. So we're not gonna, we're not gonna connect the dots where they don't need to be. Love, yeah, that's right, that's awesome. Yeah, so when we think of the color red, it's kind of a dynamic color. Um, when I think of the color red, when it comes to kind of our discussion together, I do really think about the Apostle Paul because he really was, uh, I, I, I called him the, the Apostle cloaked in red. Now, as I said that, I like had this vision of like Paul being a biblical like little red riding hood. Um, he is not that, um, but he is, uh, somebody that I think is marked by the color red, marked by much of the descriptors that you guys shared today. Um, and so I, I think he was a passionate, he was gifted, he was dynamic uh, in terms of the way that he lived his life. Uh, we can see through his writings some of that passion, some of that giftedness, some of that uh, dynamic quality that he brought uh, to much of his letters that he wrote. But as much as he was all of those things, I think he was also actually sometimes abrasive. He was often prone to high highs and low lows. And we can often see that in his writings, his life, and his teachings. Um, he's passionate and, and uh, like warm and inviting when he talks to some of his uh, church plants about the tears that he shed over them. Um, because he just loved them so much and he wanted God's best for them and he wanted uh, to see them and all these things. There's just such like a sense of tenderness there uh, with Paul. And then almost in the same breath, he is really sharp to like the Galatians, for instance, where he says that he wishes that they would emasculate themselves, like literally, uh, because of the way that they were handling the law. So we see this like kind of dichotomy that Paul lives where he's, yes, all those red words of like loving and kind and warm, but he's also kind of abrasive and can be uh, prone to high highs and low lows. And so we see a lot of uh, his life, uh, a lot of like polarizing in his life. Um, he was a man who demonstrated the powerful transformation that can come from the blood of Jesus washing us white as snow. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, a, a commentator, he writes, or he actually named his commentary about Paul, the apostle of the heart set free. Um, it will come up on the slides here in just a moment. Uh, if you want to write that down, it's called the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Um, and that's really kind of what marks Paul. And so for this module, like I said, we're going to be looking at the, at the life of what I'm calling the Apostle Marked by Red. His teachings, uh, the challenges that he faced and that his writings have created uh, in history all the way back then and even now in, in current kind of reality of our lives. Now, I say all this, he's, a, he's this Apostle Marked by Red, he's this dynamic guy, he's like fascinating. Um, this is off script, but to be honest, I think if I, uh, if Paul, like, walked into our church today, I don't know if I would be friends with him. Uh, he's kind of one of those guys that I'm like, ooh, I feel like I grate sometimes against you. 
Um, and, and so a lot of the ways that I think that we see grading against him in uh, some of his letters that he wrote, uh, to be honest, I think I would be one of those people as well. So I don't know if you'd be friends with Paul, uh, but I would have to like get there slowly with him. Um, but we do have some limitations to our time together because Paul's life, his ministry, his writings have actually commanded the attention and academia of theologians for sometimes their entire lives. Um, so for some people, they have devoted their entire life to learning about uh, Paul, his writings, the theology contained in that, how that works for the church and for us as believers. Um, and so it's commanded their entire lives. And so if it's commanded their entire lives in academia, uh, we will not be able to do everything in four short modules. Um, I was just thinking back on, as I was kind of doing this, of the classes that I've taken about Paul, and I think I numbered them five. Um, so I at least took like kind of one a year, so to speak. Um, and so I, I wish that I could give you all of that information, but really what we're going to be doing is we're going to be condensing a, and covering only a small portion of Paul. So if we were to think of it as drawing a picture, apparently we're going back to art again, um, which I can only talk about art and not actually do it, so um, take this with a grain of salt. But if we were talking about art, uh, we would be drawing like a really rough sketch of Paul. That's what we're going to kind of be doing over our time together, is we would really only be able to get a rough sketch. And so my hope uh, in this module is that a rough sketch that we do here will give you an outline with which you guys can take with you and add color and detail and consideration on your own time. Um, and so that's really what I'm hoping is to just give you a rough sketch or, or uh, for us to do that together over our next four weeks. Um, and that you guys can kind of take that home with you and like color in uh, the lines, so to speak. And so that's kind of what uh, some of the limitations to our time together are going to be. Um, any questions about those things? Good, because if you did, you would have interrupted me, which is what we're hoping for. Awesome, so we're gonna jump into Paul's early life. Now, we know actually a lot about Paul. We know a lot that we can find in scripture. We know a lot that's kind of extra biblical in its source material. And so we're going to look at Paul's early life. And this is kind of the module that we're going to be doing today, um, is to give you guys an idea of who Paul was, because I think knowing more about who Paul was will help us understand about why he wrote and did the things that he did in scripture. Um, because the reality is he was a prolific New Testament writer. He wrote over half of the New Testament. Um, and so I think to understand the person that wrote these things, although we know the author is the Holy Spirit inspiring him, um, to know this person I think is important because it gives you a little bit of a glimpse and an understanding, maybe a little bit more of how, how and why he wrote what he wrote. So we're going to jump in first to what we know from Scripture. Um, so Paul's early life we can find in Acts, uh, for instance, Acts 22, verse 3. Um, so Paul, Paul is speaking here. Uh, he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in, this, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, uh, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as a high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who are there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul in this moment is giving him a little bit, giving uh, the council a little bit of like a history of his life. And so we can see from scripture that he was uh, somebody born in uh, Tarsus of Cilicia. So I'm hoping that you can see that, um, that map there. It will give you a little bit of an idea of like where in the world that is. Um, and so that's obviously that circle piece, like down to the kind of like south, uh, East there is Syria, there's Cyprus, the island there, um, and Israel is like on a map, uh, a, a few short like kind of journey away. Um, and so the next thing that we can learn from that, from that Acts passage is that he was brought up in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. And so what he means by brought up in that moment is brought up essentially just means uh, trained as a Pharisee. And so Gamaliel was kind of the leading authority in the Sanhedrin in the first century. Um, he essentially held like a doctor of, or doctor in being a Pharisee, so to speak. Uh, he, had a, like, he had a doctor in Pharisee of Jewish law, and he was held in really great esteem. And so for Paul to be sitting under him, to be trained under Gamaliel, would have been like the creme de la creme 
of education in terms of being a Pharisee. Um, the Mishnah, which is like the oral tradition of the Torah, uh, cites him as one of the greatest teachers. This is, this is Gamaliel. Cites Gamaliel as one of the greatest teachers in all of the annals of Judaism. And so he, like, he's a legit kind of dude. And so Paul was able to be trained under this man. And that's where he got a lot of his zealousy for uh, Pharisaical law from. And so that's kind of like part of his training, part of his early life in terms of his uh, like Pharisaical training. Uh, the next place that we can find some information about Paul in Scripture is Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. And this is like, he just like lists them all off. He's kind of defending his apostleship, um, so to speak. And so we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. So again, this is Paul writing uh, to the people in Philippi. So he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so we see uh, a lot of his kind of self-disclosure of some of his, you know, like kind of credentials in order to say and do and be what he is uh, and this is like post-conversion as he's planting churches. So we're going to go through them. He was circumcised on the eighth day, keeping of the law. Uh, he was of the nation of Israel. So he was like, uh, by his uh, genealogy, an Israelite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was like really a big deal for, for uh, Pharisees there. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, he's not just a Hebrew. He's like the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's like the guy. He's a Pharisee. Uh, he's, a, he's a zealous persecutor of, or was a zealous persecutor of the church. And he says that he's actually blameless before the law. Um, and so what that would indicate is not that he was sinless. Um, Paul would know that. Um, but that he kept the law in such a perfection that in terms of just the law itself, he was like, he, he said he was blameless. And so he was very, very zealous in order to keep kind of the Pharisaical uh, law at the time. And so we see some of his uh, credentials there as well. And then finally, he was a Roman citizen. We can see that kind of all over scripture. And we're going to actually cover that a little bit later in the extra biblical sources because uh, there's a piece of your citizenship that is different than we would maybe understand it to this day. Uh, but scripture does also show us that he is a Roman citizen. So we see that he lives kind of in a, a bunch of different worlds where he is you know, an Israelite, he's culturally Jewish, he is a Pharisee, and he's also a Roman citizen. Um, and so we see kind of a couple of worlds that he lives in. And so that's kind of what we can know from Scripture, you know, among a lot of other things that we can extrapolate from there. But this is what we can know from extra-biblical sources. So according to Jerome, uh, who was a theologian in the first century, it's likely that Paul's—there are two reasons or two ways uh, that they kind of would understand how Paul got to Tarsus— so it's likely that Paul's family were taken to Tarsus because they were prisoners of war, actually. Uh, and this would have happened between 5 BC to uh, 5 AD due to uprisings against Rome. Um, and so it's likely that they were carried there as prisoners of war and then were like kind of stationed there and landed there and never went back. Um, and so they would have grown up there. His parents would be from there and some of his ancestors. Uh, and then he was born there himself. Uh, the second kind of theory in terms of how they got there or where he's from is that his ancestors maybe actually came as prisoner of war um, earlier. So this would have been a couple of generations before, uh, after Pompey's invasion of Jerusalem. Now, Pompey is not like the, the place, but like a person, P-O-M-P-E-Y, Pompey. Uh, so he invaded Jerusalem in 63 BC during the reign of Antioch, Antiochus the fourth. Epiphanes in 175 to 163 BC. So they would have been taken as prisoner of wars either then or a little bit later in history and brought uh, to Tarsus as well. So what we can know from extra biblical sources is that he was likely married. Um, and the reason for this is that it's in the Pharisaical tradition, he wouldn't have been able to kind of ascend to the place or to the um, status in which he had if he wasn't married. And so it's likely, and this is, this is uh, not proven, but it's likely that he was married, um, but that his wife died or, or there was something that happened in which he became single because we can see in Corinthians, for instance, um, that he commands some of the Corinthians to be single as he is. And so we, 
it's likely that he had a wife, but it's likely that something happened in which he then was considered to be single. And then finally, he was a citizen of Rome, like we said earlier. Now, Roman citizenship is not necessarily uh, the same as we would understand it. So I'm a citizen of Canada because I was born in Canada. Um, but that is not necessarily how it was the case with Roman citizenship. Because you could only be a Roman citizen if you were born to someone with Roman lineage. So like if I were to travel there, me as like a, this is not how it works, but me as a Canadian, if I were to travel to Rome at that time and have children there, they would not be Roman because I have no lineage in Rome. And so you need to trace that somewhere in order to gain that lineage. And so if you just happen to be there and have, and like settle there and have kids there, they would not be considered Roman. You have to have some type of lineage that comes there. And so for Paul and his family, there was some type of lineage there. And so that means that he could be a Roman citizen. So it's a little bit different than we would kind of understand uh, for like our citizenship here. And so he was a citizen of Rome, which is really important actually in the way that he kind of um, lives his life and, and in some of the ways that he's treated uh, in lots of his, his imprisonment and just in terms of being in front of a council. And so I, I actually believe that, that Paul's Jewish roots were tantamount to his Roman citizenship and his ability to spread the gospel to a variety of people, sects, and socioeconomic groups. And so I think that his, his Jewish roots were just as important as his Roman citizenship in the way that he was able to uh, plant these churches, to spread the gospel, uh, to be able to kind of do the things that he did um, in the first century in that part of the world, in the Mediterranean I think they were actually um, equal to each other. Now, if you were to ask Paul this question, he would entirely disagree with me uh, because Paul would say that his most important qualifier for spreading the gospel, uh, for the influence and reach that he had, was actually that he was a citizen of heaven and that everything else came in subjection under this reality. And so we, if, when we look at Paul's teachings, he, he would say that his citizenship of heaven is actually the most important uh, qualifier for him. Because he would, he would understand that to be the chief part of his identity, the chief part of um, the way that he lived his life, and that his uh, Jewish roots, his Roman citizenship, would then come under subjection. And, and I would agree with him, um, but there is kind of a benefit that he has of being uh, known in his Jewish roots and also his Roman citizenship. And I think that's just an important infer, like, thing for us to consider, is that the thing that qualifies us uh, to do what we do in terms of the realm of faith is not that we uh, like have position or title or um, like standing in this world or the way that the world would de describe it, but that ultimately we are citizens of heaven. And if we are that, everything else comes in subjection under that. And I think when we flip the equation, we begin to um, see some of the issues that persist in evangelicalism in North America. Um, and so <clears throat> we see these are some of the things that we can know kind of from extra biblical sources about who Paul was. Well, now we know some of who Paul was. And so we're going to now jump over to Paul's conversion. Um, and we can see Paul's conversion most clearly in his Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9. Um, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but we're just going to kind of bullet point through a lot of the highlights of this conversion experience. So we see in, in Acts 9 that it starts with Paul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of what, of what was called the way. Um, and so what the way was, was those who believed in Jesus. And so we see that uh, his conversion experience started off in a very strange way because he was actually against and uh, actively working to thwart people uh, who followed Jesus. And so we see that he's breathing threats and murder against disciples following the way. The next thing is he had power to arrest disciples, and that power was given to him uh, based on his status and from the Sanhedrin that he was allowed to arrest disciples, um, clearly, if he was breathing threats and murder against them, uh, arresting them was kind of the next step in, in completing the breathing of the threats and the murder. Um, and so he had the power to arrest the disciples and kind of deal with them how he wanted. But um, he was doing all these things, and then he had this incredible moment. There's like a but for Paul's life. 
He had a powerful conversion experience. Uh, and, and a professor, Dave Demchuk, who maybe some of you know, uh, he, he described it this way. He said his conversion experience was like rounding a corner at full speed and hitting a brick wall. Um, and he actually is quoting another, another person named Monk. Um, but he's rounding a corner at full speed. He is like going on the path of that Pharisee uh, lifestyle. And then he hits a brick wall. And that brick wall is a powerful encounter with Jesus. Um, and a powerful moment of Jesus being revealed to him by the Spirit. And so the same person, Monk, he kind of suggests actually similar motifs between Paul's conversion and the Old Testament prophet's kind of conversion or, or revelation of God. Um, and we can find these in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 to 2, verse 3, and Isaiah 6. And these are some of the themes that happen both in um, a Old Testament prophet's revelation of God and Paul's. Uh, there's a bright light. We know in the domestic experience, a bright light blinds him for a short time. Uh, in both pieces, we see a vision uh, of the Lord. Uh, or in Paul's case, he hears God ask him, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Paul and these Old Testament prophets often fell to the ground and then were eventually raised up. And then there's a call to prophesy or proclaim the word of the Lord. And so it's interesting that we see these parallels made between these Old Testament prophets uh, who would proclaim the, the word of the Lord, proclaim um, both judgment and restoration of God's people, and Paul, uh, who essentially did the same thing. And so we can kind of see a little bit of a, of a comparison made between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament apostle. Now, there is conversation, uh, and people may misunderstand, that apostleship, uh, in the way that we would understand it in the Bible, is closed. Um, so some people would say that they have the gift of apostleship, which is not the same as what we would read on this screen of a New Testament apostle. Um, so the gift of apostleship is one that is uh, the gift of like finding resources, gathering people around you, um, building up new ministries in order to serve God's people, which is not what a New Testament apostle as we read them here are. Uh, because a New Testament apostle was tasked with um, not just proclaiming God's word, but recording it. Uh, they, were, they were part of creating the theology around our understanding of God. And so us now having a closed canon, a closed Bible, we are not apostles. We are not adding to scripture. We are not subtracting from scripture. We are not creating new theology or new belief or new uh, add, adding to this faith. Um, and so that kind of, um, oh, the word just slipped to my mind. The um, kind of calling of an apostle in the New Testament is closed. So if somebody comes and say that they're apostle in that type of way, um, I would ask them where they found that reference that they get to be that, and I would be very cautious about what they uh, would say or add or think about scripture. Um, so we see the Old Testament prophet equivalence of a New Testament apostle, um, but that that kind of uh, office, that's the word I was thinking of, the office of the apostle is like closed now. And so we see kind of a parallel made uh, in both those motifs with Paul and with Old Testament prophets. Um, any questions about that particular piece? No pushbacks? You guys are tracking. Yeah, missionaries, church planters, um, lots of them would be considered to be, uh, have the gift of apostleship. Um, and then again, there's a gift of prophecy uh, that people still have today. Uh, like anytime somebody preaches, it, we would consider it to be a prophetic word. Um, but it's not adding to what we have in scripture. It is revealing what is already written here. Yes, that's right. Yeah, to establish something often new um, in a place, uh, whether that's like around the world or even like in our context, um, to start or create a new ministry. So um, they could be like a prayer ministry or an outreach ministry. Um, but they're, what I mean by that is they're not adding to scripture. So people have the gift of apostleship, like church planters, missionaries, those kind of things. Um, but they're not apostles in the way that they function as uh, like Paul was, where he is part of adding to and creating theology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. That's, that's a good clarification. Awesome. Uh, let's quickly start uh, with Pauline authorship and the menuensis debate. We'll talk about what that is. Uh, and then we will uh, take a break because we are going to have a red light question. We're going to have a red light moment. Um, so we're going to be talking about Pauline authorship because Paul, a lot of his writings, or what we'd often consider to be Pauline writings, are actually disputed a lot in academic circles. Um, so for some people, they would say that there are 13 Pauline books. For some, they'd say there's only five. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons and, and um, kind of pushback and, and conversations on both sides about what that may be. And so Paul's authorship of certain books of the Bible are actually quite dis debated and disputed. Um, and so we talk about like a Pauline canon. So not that, that that's like a, not that it's like the canon of scripture, but it's like a Pauline collection of his works. And so uh, that's often disputed in a lot of circles. And so my question for you is, why does the debate about authorship matter? So why does the debate about Pauline authorship even matter? Like, who cares about who wrote the books, you know? Like, why does it matter for us? It helps with context, and in what kind of way? Yeah, so there's like a hermeneutical principle or a study of scripture principle that comes with knowing who the author is. Because we would know, you know, essentially where they, around what frame time of when they lived and where and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, so there's like a consistency in the flow of thought. Um, there's like a building of argument. Yeah, and while all of what Paul has written in the canon is truthful, um, that maybe there's a little bit of rounding out of some of the topics or uh, key themes. So yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, that's right. Any other thoughts? Well, I have, I have a couple of thoughts, um, and I, I forgive me if they don't. Oh, they do. Great. Uh, so, the truthfulness of the whole of Scripture, I think, is then brought up, because if these letters are not truly Pauline, or they're not attributed to him, um, then are there other parts of Scripture untrue as well? Where if in here it says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, and it is not actually Paul writing this, well, then it causes, it calls into question the truthfulness of that particular verse and that particular passage. So, if that is the case, then it leads us to the question, well, is there other parts of scripture that are maybe also untrue. And so that's kind of one of the, the questions about authorship and why I think it's actually really important for us to nail it down is to, um, to bump up against the, the reality that scripture is true and it's consistent in its truthfulness. Um, so that's one of the, the reasons why the debate about authorship actually does matter. Now, the other thought is that a large portion of the New Testament is written by Paul. Over half of it is actually written, well, <laughs> I guess we're talking about authorship. If you believe that all of the Pauline books are Pauline books, uh, then that would mean that over half of the, the New Testament is written by Paul. And if that's the case, then we lean really heavily on his theology, on um, some of the structures that he puts in place, some of the, like, the uh, argument and debate that he has in there. And so it requires us to wrestle with that because we lean heavily, actually, on Pauline theology in, in order to understand uh, the New Testament. And so if there are multiple people that are, that are writing these books that were considered to be Paul, but are maybe not, um, then it means that we have to kind of wrestle with other people's theology alongside of that and kind of wrestle with what is theirs and what is Paul's. Um, and then it kind of, it, it challenges a little bit of um, the way that we understand the rest of the New Testament. And then finally, uh, like Laurel said, the consistency in thought and flow of argument and development of theology it's threatened. So Paul uh, has consistency and truth in what he writes, but there is like development of his argument and theology, and maybe not development in the sense that like he's getting rid of what he said previously, but he's essentially building on top of what he had said before. So he starts with a building block, and you know, as uh, a particular church or place struggles with that part, he'll build on it and build on it and build on it, and it all kind of helps us understand that one particular uh, concept or theology. Um, and so we do see that it's, it's important for us to understand Pauline authorship because there's a consistency in his thought and flow in the argument. And so if that's not Pauline, well, then that's threatened. And so then what seems like it could be contradictory um, between one passage and the next 
uh, well, then it is contradictory in some way. Whereas when we, when we believe it to be all Pauline of, of what is considered traditionally to be Pauline, then we see that there, that's not the case. So we need to apply hermeneutics to understand how what seems like two opposing pieces of uh, knowledge actually fit together. Um, because otherwise, they would just be disparate from each other. So that's kind of the reasons why, and not all of them. We had one about hermeneutics, which I think is also important. Um, and the, so those are some of the reasons why uh, kind of the debate about authorship even matters. Um, this was something that actually I learned about much later in like my studies in Paul in school. Um, and I never gave it much thought, but as I, as I considered it more and more, it became actually, I think, more and more critical. Um, and maybe even more and more important because um, there's some like liberal theology that is kind of coming in and is becoming quite popular that questions a lot of this stuff and, and it leads to some strange places. And so I think it's actually the debate about authorship matters even more now um, because some of what Paul's theology that I think is rooted in truth is being challenged. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with one of these kind of like foundational fundamental debates about authorship. Any other thoughts or questions about authorship? Um, there, there are a lot of things. So either it is um, somebody who has a pseudonym, and so they, and, and we wouldn't know who that is because it's a pseudonym, um, that is writing these books. And so then again, again that leads, it, it, these all lead to a lot of other places that we kind of have to condense. But in that regard, it would lead into like a question about the canon of scripture, um, all of those things, because we do have non-canonical books of the Bible that didn't make it into the canon because they were, um, like they were opposing to other pieces of scripture. So for some, it's a pseudonym. Um, for some, it would be like, so they would be writing under the cloak or the guise of Paul, but are not actually Paul. Um, and then some, are, some could be attributed to other um, apostles, so like Peter or, um, you know, some of the, like James or, or another apostle there as well. Um, and so it's, it's less of a question about if it's Pauline and more of just a misattribution to another apostle. Um, and so there's a lot of debates. And then there is the amanuensis debate, which uh, we'll, we'll get into in just a couple of minutes, that will probably help bring some clarification. Good question. Any other questions? Awesome. Uh, there was uh, just one question about why I keep saying the word Pauline. Um, essentially, it just means like of Paul. So uh, if we were talking about like Peter's theology, it'd be Petrine theology, all those things. So um, Pauline is just essentially like an attribution to the fact that Paul himself was, was writing it. Um, so I just want to clear that up because I'm, I've used that word probably a million times already. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about some of the disputed Pauline letters. So there are kind of some contrib contributing factors as to why some of Paul's letters have been disputed or have been claimed to have been written by somebody else. So the first one is, here's your word of the day, apart from amanuensis, is the prevalence of hapax legomena. That's, that's a Greek word. Um, and so what that, that means is it's a word that's only found once in scripture. Um, and so a lot of Paul's letters have these kind of hapax legomena, some of these words that uh, are only found once in scripture. And so that makes it a little bit challenging as to uh, uh, attributing some things to being Pauline in the sense that there is no way to kind of corroborate those words. Um, so if we see like a, a similar word used in different letters, then we can see that like maybe that's a, a Paul, like a word that Paul enjoyed or a word that he would often use to, to kind of make a point. Um, but the reality is there's lots of these hapax legomena that we find in Paul's letters. And so it's hard to corroborate some of those words or those specific terms that he uses because they're only found once in Scripture. So if they were found in other places, it could give us clues. Now, I don't think it would be definitive, but it could give us clues as to maybe it was actually written by somebody else who uses these same words. Um, but there's a really high amount of these words found in Paul's writings. So now, for instance, when people make that argument, um, so Galatians, for instance, sorry, Colossians is often rejected because of its prevalence of hapax legomena, because of these words that are only found once in scripture. So Colossians is often um, easily refuted on, on that basis. But for instance, Galatians, which is like a purely undisputed Pauline letter, like across like all of the kind of theology you would find, it's Galatians is not disputed. 
but it actually has just as many of these words as Colossians does. And so even when people make this argument, there begins to, to be a little bit of a breakdown of this argument, um, because one of his like, most undisputed, very Paul-like letters um, has just as many uh, of these words found only once in Scripture as Colossians, which is very often um, dismissed for that reason. Now, uh, the next one is uh, the difference in style and form of writing. Now, when you hear that one, so some people would reject some of Paul's letters because of the difference in style and form of writing. What would you say to that? I would love to hear your thoughts. Like if somebody were to say, oh, I, I reject, um, let's say, 2 Corinthians because of the difference in style and form of writing, what would you say to that person? Right. Yep, so there's like a um, contextualizing for his audience. Yeah, that's right. Yes, absolutely. Yep, difference in like place. So would you write a love letter to your beau or belle in the same way that you would write a business pr proposal? Well, no, of course, that would be like absurd. Or, or it would be a strange business proposal. Um, so I think that that's like one of the, the ways that I would consider that is Paul had um, varying degrees of relationship with the people that he wrote to. Um, some of his letters were not just read to that particular church, but were actually cycled around like surrounding churches. And so by nature, it maybe needed to be a little bit more formal or a little bit more um, general for those people. Um, and so in the same way that we don't write with the same style and form uh, as we have varying types of letters, well, I think it would be the same for Paul. And so, yeah, I think those are great thoughts. Um, so traditionally, the Pauline books are as follows. This is what... Uh, is in tradition. This is what I would subscribe to uh, in terms of Pauline books, and you're welcome to disagree, but uh, these are what uh, traditionally the Pauline books are. Romans, uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st uh, and 2nd Thessalonians, Philemon, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Um, now, depending on who you ask, uh, some people would say that they would actually attribute Hebrews, although it is, like, unknown, uh, that they would attribute Hebrews uh, to Paul as well. So there are a couple that may be thrown in there, but traditionally those are uh, what we would consider the Pauline canon or the, the collection of Paul's particular writings in scripture. Um, so I think it's important just for us to have that down because um, I don't know if I could spout, out, spout off all of those uh, off the top of my head. And so it's just good for us to have them written down just so we know. So here are some points of consideration as it comes to, to specifically Pauline authorship. What those who often dispute Paul's letters uh, pay insufficient attention to are four things. Uh, the first one is the di diversity of style, even within undisputed letters. So even with those that are like truly, purely across all boards, Pauline, they look very different in style and form um, than each other. And so we even see with those that are undisputed that there's a difference and a in style and form, just like those who dispute it would say that would actually dismiss those as Pauline, but we see that as those in the undisputed ones as differing. You guys are clearly academics because a lot of what you said are actually the insufficient attention, so good job, guys. Uh, so there's the influence of subject matter and the situation on the nature of discourse. So Philippians, for instance, is like a Pauline letter that's written like, it's called a friendship letter. Um, because there's like the tenderness towards the Philippians, um, there's a love towards them, there's an encouragement towards them. But then when we see 2 Corinthians, for instance, well, 2 Corinthians is a very, very harsh letter. Um, this is a second, this is like kind of a second warning, or actually, depending on who you ask, the third warning um, to the Corinthians. And he is like hard and fast on his, on defending his apostleship, uh, because that was, you know, being called into question amongst the Corinthians. Um, and so the nature of the subject matter is vastly different between Philippians and Corinthians. Um, and so the nature of discourse will change all of those things. And so uh, they pay insufficient attention to that as well. Again, we wouldn't write a love letter in the same way we would write a business proposal. Um, there are rhetorical conventions. So for instance, um, in traditional kind of Greco-Roman writing, a lot of times um, there would be like rhetorical conventions. So a type of argument uh, that's kind of structured a certain way uh, that Paul would often use because a lot of the people would be c converts of like kind of Roman, um, 
religion, and so they grew up in Rome, they were part of Rome or influenced by Rome, and so that Greco-Roman um, style was one that he used in an incredible way, actually, in order to communicate the gospel, and I think that's such an interesting kind of rhetorical argument that he makes, um, and not rhetorical in the sense of asking a question that doesn't have an answer, like a, like a rhetorical question, but rhetorical in the, in the sense of like an argument, a formal argument, or a formal way of discussing something. So in, for instance, in Romans 7, uh, there's a part where he says, like, I do what I don't, uh, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I know I should do. That one always trips me up, and I probably just got it wrong again. Um, and so, we, you know, that's like a rhetorical convention where he's taking, um, like, he's writing in character. So he's not writing necessarily as himself, but he's writing as, like, this theoretical person who's not just struggling, I, I wouldn't say struggling with a sin nature, but struggling with... Um, the, the role of the law in his life. And so he's kind of writing as this character. And so that's like a rhetorical convention that would have been really popular in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and so people often don't like take time to understand, again, like Pastor Lisa said, the hermeneutics of it. Um, and as a result, throw out things that shouldn't be thrown out. And then finally, the complex character of Paul's letters. Um, he, like, he deals with a lot of stuff in those letters. Um, it's really complex. It's very situational for the people that he's writing to. Um, and so it just takes a little bit of a different style, look, feel, um, letter to letter. Any thoughts about those points of consideration? Any ones you would maybe push back on, disagree with, add to? Great. Well, we're going to get to our next vocab word here. Uh, the definition of an amanuensis. Um, and this is often, uh, you know, again, a, a debate amongst scholars. <clears throat> so amanuensis is someone who would write letters or manuscripts of another author, usually by dictation. Um, so my mom, when I was growing up, uh, she worked for my grandpa, who was an insurance adjuster. And what he would do is he would go to these, um, these claims or these accidents and dictate on a little, like, cartridge uh, all of his notes. So he would like write all these notes, all of these things, or sorry, he would dictate all of these notes and all of these thoughts that he would have. And my mom's responsibility was to take those, play them, and type them out. Um, and so that's kind of a, a little bit of an example about what an amanuensis is. So there's this dictation that they take and then scribe. Um, and so Samantha mentioned a scribe, and so that's part of their role of an amanuensis. Is somebody would be like literally sitting here or like lying down, um, and he would he or she would dictate what he wants to say in that letter, and somebody else would write it down. So that's what an amanuensis is. It's a really fancy word that now you can use at a dinner party. Um, just kidding. You might, your, your guests would leave. So depending on the relationship between the author and their particular amanuensis, um, some stylistic liberties could be taken, as long as they didn't threaten the essence of the letter or manuscript. And so that's maybe where we see some of those stylistic changes with Paul's letters. Um, that's where we maybe see some of those hapax legomena, those words only used once in scripture, is a result of using an amanuensis. And so there are some things that says, like, I am writing in my own hand, that Paul is saying, in which he would probably have written that, like, with his hand on uh, that tablet. Or um, there are other times where he says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you can see that there's somebody else that would be scribing what he's saying. Um, and so, depending on the relationship with that amanuensis and the particular um, request of the, the author, some liberties could be taken in terms of style. And so that's maybe where we see a little bit of uh, disparity between the style of his, his letters. Um, but again, to like clarify, they don't uh, threaten the essence of the letter or the essence of the manuscript. So nothing at its core is, is, would have been changed by amanuensis, but like, what we decorate it with would have looked maybe different. Um, so again, Paul could have used an amanuensis in some of his letters, particularly those that were disputed. Um, however, while the writer may be different, the author of Paul's letters is Paul himself. So while the writer may be different, the author is Paul himself. Um, okay, so we're going to just jump into a quick dating of Paul's letters. Um, again, I feel like everything about Paul is disputed, um, and so the dating of Paul's letters are often disputed. Um, it's, like, very broad. It's very broad in, like, where and when, and, like, one is replaced by another, and, you know, like, there's very 
um, either major or minor adjustments of this. It's a really long time. For the sake of our time together, um, I just want to land on the presupposition of a traditional view of the dating of Paul's letters as follows. So this is going to be in order. We have First uh, and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, One Timothy, Titus, and Two Timothy. Um, so that is in chronological order, or what we're going to presuppose is uh, the chronological order of his of his letters. Now these do again with the, the conversation about the organization and structuring of his arguments and um, development of that, I think that this actually, this traditional uh, ordering actually does lend itself to the most cohesive um, building of his arguments. Uh, it's particularly around a lot of the kind of challenging parts of Paul's writing, so the role of the spirit in the church, uh, the women's role in, in the church particularly. Um, that particular type of dating actually, I think, makes the most cohesive um, building of his argument. And so we're going to have that as our presupposition because we're really just splitting hairs with a lot of them. Okay, we're going to bust through a really quick timeline of Paul's letters um, because we're running out of time. And I would really love to get through some of this stuff that falls. So this is a timeline of Paul's life. Uh, we're just going to, I think it actually will come up as one whole point. Yes. So if you guys really want to take this down, I would encourage you to take a picture of it with your phones um, because I'm just going to rip through this. So my apologies. Um, if you don't get a picture in time, don't worry. I can give it to you as well. Um, so we have in Acts 9, verse 1 to 25, his conversion, uh, which happened in, on the road to Damascus, which is in the Arabian desert. That was about... AD 33 to 34. Uh, his first visit to Jerusalem was about a year after that in AD 35. Um, he begins preaching to Caesarea and Tarsus uh, in that same year all the way until uh, AD 46. Uh, and another important part of his life, Syrian Antioch with Barnabas in AD 46. His first missionary journey happens in AD 47 to 48, so he's gone for about a year. He's traveling all around uh, Asia Minor and the Greco-Roman world. Uh, do, do his Jerusalem council, which is uh, one of the millions of times that he is in front of the council because he did something that annoyed them, slash threatened the whole structure of uh, Jewish life, uh, which is 80, 48 to 49. Uh, he has a second missionary journey, uh, which is questionable about the actual visit, um, but is 80, 49 to 52. His third missionary journey happens directly after that, from AD 52 to 57. This is when he kind of moved through a bunch of places in Asia Minor and established much of the churches that we find he writes letters to. Um, so then he has his final Jerusalem visit and also his arrest uh, after he's done these missionary journeys in AD 57. And then he has a bunch of trials and journeys back to Rome because um, he's tried in a different place, claims that he's a Roman citizen. Everyone freaks out because they're now contravening uh, what should be like Roman law, and so they send back to Rome uh, to have the rest of his trial there in AD 57 to 60. He arrives there in 60 AD, and he's placed under house arrest uh, from AD 60 to 62. And then this is post, so that's all that we find as we like quickly um, zoom through all of Acts. There is some post-Act events which are um, either based on tradition or speculation, um, but in AD 62, he is likely released from his Roman arrest, visits Spain, um, and then lucky guy gets imprisoned again. And then he is likely executed by Nero in AD 65. Um, so in approximately 30, 32 years, he lives a lot of life. Um, and this is not even just a full compiling. There's, he's shipwrecked. His life is wild. He's bitten by snakes and then doesn't die. And so he lives life. That's like kind of a brief timeline of his life um, that I think is just nice for us to see. We can find it in Acts, so it's kind of proven in a, in a source there. But finally, uh, so all of Paul's writings are letters. So they are letters to uh, particular churches. But here's the thing, is that the way that we would write a letter today, or <laughs> I mean, who even writes a letter now? But the way that we would write an email today uh, is vastly different than how uh, Paul wrote all the way back in the first century. And 
the way that he wrote it is often within the framework of, of what was already found in the Greco-Roman world. So Paul didn't innovate um, letter writing in any particular way, but he took what was a framework of likely what he, he learned when he was educated and kind of like used that as a template in entirely different um, content and theology than what would be written in a Greco-Roman world. Um, but I think it's important for us to know how letters were written then because it does give us some idea and understanding of why he writes things the way that he does. Because a lot of times you're reading this, you're like, why do you say this thing over and over and over again? But it's because he's using the structure found in um, first century that they would have been familiar with. And I think that's such a gift that Paul had was he took a lot of what was found already in the Greco-Roman world and used it in a context that served the gospel. Um, and I think that's an incredible gift for him. That's an incredible um, ability that he had to do that. And I think as believers, um, we need to kind of take that example that Paul set uh, and just have that be part of what we do as well, where we don't need to always innovate and like create new wheels. When we can use that as a tool that people are already familiar with to give them the gospel, because I think it's received in such an, uh, a more natural way for them. Um, so Paul's writings are called epistles, uh, which is essentially just a fancy word for letters. Um, so the nature of epistles, which are not exclusively Pauline in the Bible, is that many of them are, are and were occasional. So they were written to a specific church at a specific time for a very specific reason. Now, I said before, and it's true, that some of his, some of his letters would have been like cycled around a couple of churches, um, which is why he references other places in his letter, in his letters, excuse me. Um, but they're often right to a specific person, a specific, sorry, a specific church, a specific time for a specific reason. So this means that there are actually immediately some challenges to interpretation because they're so specific. Um, and so we need to use good hermeneutical principles. And all of you who came to hermeneutics will have at least a baseline for that. Um, and I'm sure you guys know how to study scripture even beyond just my one class I gave you. Um, to kind of grasp the concept. The cultural milieu of the time, the ethos of that particular church at the time, to kind of properly apply Paul's teachings to that church and that context, but also to our context too. And so, like I said, the structure of Paul's letters were not innovative, um, and they follow the traditional Greco-Roman style and structure. Um, where it diverges, and it obviously is the content in which it was being written, and some of the distinctions Paul makes to the structure. So we're going to go a quick run-through of Greco-Roman structure. Stay with me, guys. So we have an introduction. We have the introduction. There's a salutation. Um, the, the author identifies themselves. And then the author identifies their intended reader. We see that, like, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ. Or, uh, sorry, oftentimes we say grace and peace. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ. To the, letter, to the church in Galatia, colon, all of his letter. So that's the introduction. We have a health wish, a prayer, a thanksgiving. Um, there's a main body of the letter, uh, and it can take many forms, again, in Greco-Roman style as well, depending on the nature of the letter being written. And then there's a conclusion. There's an expression of a greeting from people known to the author and the recipient, if applicable. Now, these are the Pauline distinctions of that Greco-Roman structure. We're not going to flip over, because I'll give you a moment to just write that all down. All right, so these are some of the Pauline distinctions as it came to writing and the structure of it. Um, so in the salutation, he would use grace and peace almost in every single letter instead of a sterilized greetings. Now, I think when Paul is saying grace and peace, he's not just saying it as like a, like, you know, when somebody walks in the door and you say, hey, how's it going? And you like, you mean it, but you don't necessarily like mean it. Do you know what I mean? Where you're like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, good, good. And that's all you want. Um, Paul actually truly meant like, he wished upon the people that were receiving his letter that they would know God's grace and that they would know his peace. Now, this was a greeting that was offered, but I think it held um, more intention than I think that we would maybe see just in a greeting, like a, hey, what's up, kind of throw him a, throw him a hello. Um, so Paul identified himself as the author, of course, uh, but he would also bring some type of clarification to his credentials. Um, depending on the severity of the letter, depending on the nature of it, um, so Paul will defend his credentials in different ways in different uh, letters. So in some, he leans heavily on his apostleship. So in like 2 Corinthians, for instance. Um, but in Galatians, he often leans more, or, or even in Philippians, he leans more on his like Jewish roots uh, or his life as a Pharisee. So depending on that, he'll, he'll clarify those credentials. 
Um, the thanksgiving uh, is obviously attributed only to Jesus Christ, uh, rather than pagan Roman gods, which had been found in the Greco-Roman world. Um, so he also says, I thank my God that, all those things. Um, the length and the content, content would be uh, different than is typical in Greco-Roman content, although sometimes the development in theology or argument would follow traditional structures. Um, so it is not often likely that a letter written uh, would be as long as Paul's would be, for instance. It would often be a little bit more condensed uh, because it was more like letters there were more for brevity than they were for um, like drawing things out in terms of a conversation. But he, again, like I said, he often used what was already in structure in place in the pe pagan world uh, to serve argumentative or rhetorical uh, means for the gospel to be spread. And then finally, Paul would often give a benediction at the end of his letters. So he would give them like a short little nursery rhyme uh, for them to remember the essential parts of his letter. So that's a lot of times when you find at the very last paragraph of Paul's letters, it'll be almost like a repetition of all the things that you just read in short form. And he does that because they would be read out loud. You wouldn't like, not everybody got the email. You weren't CC'd on like Paul's letters. Um, one person would receive that one letter they would often read it aloud to the congregation, and that would be it. Um, and so people didn't get to take home their own copy, and so oftentimes Paul would have a benediction at the end that would be like a nursery rhyme for them to remember all of the essential parts of his letter so that they could like keep it easily in their mind and not have to remember a whole letter's worth of content and information. So when you're reading some of Paul's letters, if you find that in the last paragraph that there's like almost a repetition, like those are the points to like really consider and pay attention to, because those are the points that Paul really wanted them to grasp. Um, so that's kind of just like a, an easy tool for kind of reading um, some of Paul's letters. Um, so there's some challenges too, and some suggestions for interpretation as it comes to Paul's letters. Um, so some of this you may have maybe a, a repeat of um, our hermeneutics class, but this is just a couple of like fun facts that I want to give to help you uh, guide you through Paul's letters. So the first one to consider is that Paul's letters are one-sided. Um, and so we didn't get to see either the initial letter to Paul saying like, help our church is on fire, we don't know what to do, everything is like bursting into flames, or some of the responses to Paul's letters. Um, and so he he kind of He'll often reference them in certain ways, like, as, as you said or so you say. Um, like, in 2 Corinthians, he often will do that because 2 Corinthians is essentially a response to 1 Corinthians uh, or a lack thereof of a response on behalf of Corinth. Um, and so he'll often reference that, but letters are one-sided. So we don't get to necessarily see the full scope of what was going on um, in that type of way. Now, we can infer some of it from culture, we can infer some of it from context, we can infer some of it from histor like historical context, but we don't know exactly what was said to Paul in his letter, like to Paul in their letters. Um, again, understanding the historical and cultural context is like incredibly, incredibly important for, for Paul's letters because they're so situational and so specific um, that I think, you know, historical and and um, cultural context is incredibly important for any time we interpret scripture. But I think particularly for Paul's letters, they're very important um, because they just give a little bit of understanding of why Paul is writing this. Um, a lot of times, like in Corinthians, for instance, and I'm not going to give it all away because then you won't come next week. Um, but uh, a lot of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians is about like sexual ethics. Well, it's because in Corinth at the time, um, if you were called, like, if I said somebody was a Corinthian, it was, like, an offensive term that they were, like, uh, had very loose sexual ethics, for instance. Or they lived a life of, like, unbridled debauchery. And so um, so a lot of his, his letter to them is about sexual ethics, about morality, like, Christian morality, because the surrounding culture and history of, of Corinth was such that they kind of permitted everything and anything. And so that's often why Paul speaks to that, is because a lot of these people were converts, of people living in, like, pagan lives in Corinth. Um, so I think the historical and cultural context is important. Uh, the next thing that I would suggest to you, uh, maybe not every single time, but at least uh, once in a while, is to read the letter as it was intended, which is in its entirety. Um, so oftentimes, you know, we'll work through, like, a verse or a paragraph or a chapter, um, and that's great, and it's important, and that has its merit, 
but I think you can understand and grasp a lot of what Paul's trying to say in the flow of argument when you read it all in one setting. Now, it is a little bit of, of a discipline. Some of Paul's letters are long, and uh, a lot of Paul's letters have like literally no punctuation because it's like an eternal run-on sentence. Um, so it can be a little bit hard to like figure out where like the breath should be necessarily. Um, but I would suggest you to read it in its entirety. Um, and if you've never done that before with Paul's letters, I would encourage that because it's very interesting uh, as you see the development of thought and flow of argument when you read it in one setting, which is realistically as it was intended to be read. Um, after you've done that, I would encourage you then to break down uh, the letter into paragraphs, specific arguments, illustrations, whatever else you may find in there, because I think that does help you piece apart some of those arguments that you've just read all flowing together um, and just allow you to like see what is the whole and break it into manageable parts for you as well. Um, so I'd encourage you to read it first as one in one sitting and then pull it apart as you see fit afterwards because I think it will help your pulling apart uh, to be something that brings richness and clarity um, and just better understanding of, of what is trying to be communicated for our hearts and for our lives today. Well, that's kind of a picture of Paul the person. Um, so a lot of this seems very, like, uh, wide and vast, but I think, like, to understand who Paul was will help us to understand what he wrote. Um, and so thank you so much for, like, taking a quick, again, like, character sketch of Paul, um, because I think that his the way that he lived his life, his upbringing, his past, his experiences um, are both important for us to understand his letters, but are also should be encouraging for each one of us today. That a man who was read with anger uh, against the people that were following Jesus, who murdered them and imprisoned them, and who was entirely in every part of his being against him, had a powerful encounter with Jesus. And not just that, he had a powerful encounter with Jesus and chose to live in such a way that was in light of that reality. And I, uh, he's such a great picture that like nobody is uh, outside of the realm of use of God's plan and purpose. No matter what your past looks like, no matter what you currently subscribe to, um, no matter the lifestyle in which you currently live, that if you are genuinely wanting to follow after Jesus, whether blind like Paul was at the beginning or with very clear eyes as he followed Jesus, that God can do some incredible things in our lives. Um, and so I hope we take that away from our character sketch of Paul, that he truly was an apostle of the heart set free, but set free by the truth of who Jesus was. Um, and so I hope today that you would uh, take that away uh, as, as a chief part of Paul's life, as he is an incredible testament to the, to the transformative power of Jesus Christ. Um, and that it can truly lead to some incredible things if you choose to be used um, as a partner in God's will for your life. Uh, any last questions? Any last thoughts? Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for, for joining with me. Um, if you have any more questions that come up in the weeks or days to come, please just feel free to come to the church, give me a call. You can send me a letter. Be very Pauline of you. Um, and I will endeavor to send one back. Um, I'll maybe be a little bit more soft-spoken than Paul, but no promises. Um, but yeah, anyways, guys, thank you so much for coming. Hope to see you next week. We're going to be jumping into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, a church that was like on fire in all the wrong ways, and uh, how that looked like in their lives and what Paul spoke to some of those things um, that are really pertinent and relevant even to us today. Uh, so I'd love for you guys to join us next week. Um, but thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I hope you guys have a good rest of your evening.